expand my own horizons to unpack ideas that I am toying with more clearly since I am coming to realize more and more that I am a verbal processor in the sense that I can tap into greater into greater streams of thinking if I am processing verbally as if I am teaching or in a discussion. I can still think fine on my own when it's quiet and it's just in my head, but there seems to be a, a degree difference, not a kind difference, if I'm externalizing through speech my thoughts, which is a fascinating thing in and of itself. Perhaps I could cover that in a different podcast, but the, the idea that thinking is bound by our biological, our habitual constraints is something worth investigating for everybody. We often think intelligence is just some flat measure, something you have as if it's a bank account number. You either have intelligence to this level or you do not. It's rarely plainly seen or thought about as a function, as a capability, which no one would deny that it isn't. Everyone would, would, when asked, say intelligence is a capacity, intelligence is a function. But how we talk about it and think about it outside of that plain question seems to say the opposite. When asked, are you a smart person? This is a good example. How would one respond? One wouldn't respond in the colloquial use of the term with, I have the function of being intelligent, yes. <laughs> what, what one answers with is, do I embody some th- minimum threshold of intelligence as understood culturally? That is essentially the question. It isn't, do you have the capability to think? Do you grasp the intellect itself but often I wonder if these bounds and constraints on thinking are the key to having people succeed in in multiple arenas but specifically of course with education and thinking a great example could be with politics often people think that they're too far too uneducated to discuss politics to give an opinion to even take a side Um, and it's sad and disturbing to me that such a such a movement in in the public conscious of our of our nation is arising that people feel as though they have to justify themselves in order to enter in on the conversation and that they themselves are the enforcer of this barrier to entry Of course, it's always a noticeable and pretty condemnable thing when someone else declares that somebody isn't justified in giving an opinion. But often, that's not the mechanism by which this barrier is enforced. It's it's often the individual themselves that puts limits. But in terms of our biological and habitual constraints, imagine someone who deeply is convicted by an instance or an event or an idea that is politically inclined in nature, but they have a constraint that is compelling them to not think about it, to repress it, 
or to destroy it in their in their own psyche. I, I can imagine something like this being mental health. I can imagine something like this being workload balance, work-life balance, stress. I, if you do not technically have the mental capacity to engage in thoughts about politics after you get home from your from your activities of the day that's a biological constraint on your thinking and rarely does it seem that we address these we acknowledge them all the time i i don't have the time to talk about politics i don't have the time to investigate things for myself and think about them that's technically not what they're saying what they're technically saying is i don't have the energy i don't have the the raw capability of doing so because of my stress and my work or my education or whatever it is that's taking my day the time is there rarely is the time not there where you actually do not have a minute to spare of your day but no one is is incorrect when they say they don't have time to enter politics what they're truly saying is my my biological constraints are removing me the the possibility of doing such a thing and similarly with habitual constraints how we think is reinforced every time we think that way this is true of brain structure this is true of neurons and how we we are technically created from a biological perspective to think the more you do something the more a synapse in your brain fires the stronger that connection becomes and becomes easier to do that thing later. Thinking is no different. While thinking is not wrapped up completely within the biological, I firmly believe, the biological has enormous bearing on the intangible mind. And similarly to energy, if you, I simply just do not have the, the effort and energy available to think, if I am so tired that I am nodding off in class, there's not because of a lack of will that I'm failing to think. There is a, a strict biological and habitual impact. Similarly, if one thinks in certain patterns continuously, if whenever one engages with politics, they do so because someone on social media that they follow posted something about politics, and that is the only true interaction one has with politics. Their actual habitual structure is, in a sense, a hindrance or obstacle to them thinking. And as I have come to realize through this entire introduction, it seems, most of these issues are not, they're not hidden from the individual experiencing them nor society at large. We acknowledge a lot of these things. The problem is we do not take them seriously or see them as live options to be changed by our behavior. And I lament that. There, there are times when I am, I'm pointed out by some external reality, a person or an event or, or an internal reality like reflection where I am cutting myself off at the knees by my choices and my thinking. And this isn't to say that thinking as such is an unquestioned good that needs to be worshipped. But 
similarly to how one can classify mental health as as a diagnosed issue, it impacts my functionality in a real sense. It is preventing me from doing the things I have a responsibility and motive to do. Such thinking doesn't need to be worshipped, it needs to be respected. Instances like this are, are deep moments of character. And I think that as the ancient Greek philosophers, such as Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, emphasized, much of morality has to do with your character, the way you think, and what you do about the, the given realities that are in front of you. When I'm presented with a reflection such as I am in a situation using my friends to accomplish some gain for myself, once I become aware that that is something happening by my own choice, whether conscious or not, the question of morality, the question of what is the right thing to do isn't exactly an action I need to perform. I've done the action of reflecting and I'm not currently in the situation where I can choose to act differently. I'm not in the situation where around my friends where I have the choice to either use them or not for my own gain as per the reflection. That's not the real question of morality in this instance. So what could it possibly be? There can't there cannot be a discovery or observation of moral tension without an actual choice to be made. The, such, a, such scenarios are, are illusions, in which case you either do have a choice or you haven't discovered a moral tension actually, or you're just reflecting about it in abstract. What reflections such as this are, are though, are real moments of character where you can define, redefine really, and set yourself on a course to make the proper corrections to do the right thing down the road. And I think that a lot of our culture, the way that I am experiencing living in the United States as a 22-year-old right now, we aren't taught to take those moments seriously. They're, They're embodied in many ways in many media, but it's never explicitly taught it's not exactly evident to me where I would go to to find an answer of what I do knowing that I, I sometimes use my friends for my own advantage. The clear answer here, of course, is don't do that, but that isn't exactly the answer. That isn't what one means when they say, what should I do? The question one's really asking is, what internal experience do I need to have and facilitate myself to correct this behavior, to correct this, this flaw. And that is a question of character. It is a question of motivations, inward experience and reflection, a setting one's heart and mind right. I think that when we ignore biological and habitual constraints, on our thinking. We are removing the tools we need in order to make those moral choices and to actually achieve progress and improvement in ourselves 
as people? How can one expect to to actually grow as a person, to make substantial and meaningful differences in the way they treat people and themselves if they have no disposable energy and time to thinking about these things? Some of the most important decisions about your character have to be made consciously. They have to. Character is manifest in the big moments, but it is crafted, refined, and built in the small ones. It is in our daily reflections. It is in the mundane moments when our mind grasps hold of something almost unwittingly that our true destinies are being weaved in a real sense. And destiny isn't something that you get to forcibly choose in the moment of the decision. Oftentimes it is not. And I don't think that we as a people, I don't think I myself as a person, are going to get any better at doing the right thing, at being the right person, unless I actively work to maximize my thinking to maximize my ability of reflection given my biological and habitual constraints. And the following question one would have is, does that mean you never change your constraints? Does that mean you simply need to redistribute your resources as they appear to you? And that that clearly is one way of going about it. If, If someone is working 80 plus hours a week and they don't have time for their family in a really impactful way and their family is suffering for it, one correct answer could be that they need to not be working 80 hours plus a week or else they just can't accomplish their goal of, of truly living in harmony with their family. The same could be said of such a situation as someone doesn't have the reserves, the energy, the resources to think critically as they need to about important things and reflect it could seriously be the case that they need to redistribute how they use their time and energy but I think that is a drastic upheaval in people's lives and often it is too costly to be sustainable one can't simply just upheave their entire understanding and summary of how they live on a frequent basis because it's unlikely that if you do it once that's the only time you'll need to do it I certainly don't experience it that way oftentimes issues of reflection that I face they afford such change that if I just put my rest of my life on pause I'm never going to get around to actually becoming better just more problems will pop up so how how can we address our biological and habitual constraints in thinking in a sustainable yet ecological way so that we get more out of it without having to put more cost in? That is the question. And I think it's possible. Here's a great example. College students and sleep schedules don't mix often. I I have done my very best to, to afford a good sleep schedule myself, but it doesn't always come. And that's just the way it is that's the life I've chosen to live but you can clearly tell a difference in one's energy 
one's functionality and one's well-being if they go from a having a consistent sleep schedule of five hours a night to seven the difference is tangible and substantial and given the problem as we've posed it they didn't upheave their entire lifestyle to accomplish that change surely changes needed to be made but it wasn't a complete redistribution of their time in such a way as they questioned whether they should be going to college at all. What happened was an ecological and sustainable change where they put more time into sleep and less into something else. Those two hours had to be taken for something else, sure, but there wasn't an entire redistribution that needed to occur. I think similar things can, can be done in order to improve our reflection and our thinking as a people a clear example in my life is I have many distractions available to me I have television I have video games I have friends I have books that aren't homework I have sitting around and thinking and doing nothing I have going for walks. I have an any any number of things that can distract me from what I ought to be doing. The issue then is the self-control and discipline needed to choose the right thing to do. And herein lies the real issue of time and energy. We all have the opportunity to be productive with our days, with our time. And in order to have those ecological changes that push us further into more critical thinking, more reflection, more actual improvement and growth as people, we need to cultivate discipline in order to bastion ourselves against the temptation of distractions. For myself, this means when I have completed some homework, when I have completed a task and I've been productive, It is to have the discipline to not be satiated with my productivity and then move on to leisure. As my mother would often say when I was young, and first work and then play. You cannot sacrifice, you cannot sacrifice productivity and claim that one is being productive in doing so. Surely rest fits in there somewhere. And it ought to. And leisure is integral to a, a good life. I, I firmly believe that. But when one betrays their own goals from a lack of discipline, there is no excuse for that. And in a real way, one sets their own expectations uh, and meaning of goals. There isn't an objectively right answer here. I'm not here to say that it ought to be 40 hours a week versus 60 hours a week that you need to be productive in order for you to achieve this. The point is, when you willingly betray what you have set forward for yourself to do, there's no, there is no justification for that. The betrayal is the issue. It's not the lack of productivity. And that's exactly what discipline is. Discipline is the capability to, to set out and execute what one promises to themselves that they will execute. At least the way I've experienced it. I would say that I am undisciplined to the degree that I don't do what I know and want to do. 
So those ecological shifts that don't require total redistribution of resources, how do we implement that into our biological and habitual constraints on thinking? A great example is change the media through which you engage in to think. For some people, this means social media. For others, this means our friends. And for others, this means ourselves. Social media is the clearest example that has obviously been isolated within cultural thinking for at least a few years now. The way we engage in news and politics through social media isn't exactly productive and inclines us towards critical thinking. There's a real argument to be made that what it does is it sets us up to think in ways that only produces anger and impulsive response, not true understanding and curiosity and the like. There's clearly an argument to be made there. But I also have seen it occur with the way people engage in politics with their friends and and more accurately with their enemies. Though people don't describe them as, as such often, the people that you are around most, your peers, they are a true metric for how you engage in critical thinking. Either you are allowed to speak about issues such as politics that require critical thinking or you are not. That is a clear measure of an ecological difference that can be made to increase your thinking and reflection. If you don't surround yourself with people who actually encourage you to think, that's a that's a habitual constraint. That's a barrier to you achieving true reflection and true thought. Similarly, if your friends only guide you in a certain direction in thinking and discourse, that also is a habitual constraint. The habit being the people you surround yourself with. The habit being you choose to be in that presence. That's a constraint. You have to fight against that to to truly think. Having friends that are productive, that are thoughtful, and that can listen are probably the qualities and types of friends that you need most in order to maximize your mental well-being. It's truly been said for mental health reasons you need those sorts of people. But similarly, when it comes to your quality of thinking and your ability to reflect and actually improve as a person, the same is true. And internally, how you think about things, those thought patterns, those processes and habits those are a huge source of impediment and barrier. For myself, I have I have a lot of internal shame with mistakes. It is not often the case that I do something wrong and there is external, clear and direct external response from people I value that provide the pushback for what I did wrong. Often I'm critical and harsh on myself. But coming with that is the habit then of wanting to hide my faults or to not think about them entirely if they can be hidden. Because for what reason should I talk to someone about something that I did wrong when I'm guilty and shameful about it 
and there is no reason for this person or friend to know about it unless I explicitly bring it up. In such an instance, it is easy to fall into the temptation of remaining quiet and not thinking about my faults. When one doesn't think about their faults, they they have begun a game with themselves where they simply slap the thing on the wrist that they have condemned, but they've done nothing to bind it, restrain it, and to correct it. It's letting your child steal from the cookie jar, and the only the only consequence of them doing so is you giving them a nasty look. True, true reform and and change of behavior requires punishment and rebuke. And this is a thought pattern that I personally get into often and easily, and many others are are like it that people fall for consistently. These are the sorts of reflections and, and changes we as the people need to make in order to actually improve ourselves. The quality of our thinking is not set. Intelligence is not set. One has boundaries and constraints on their thinking and recognizing those and understanding the ways that you can actually make a difference in those constraints are the integral steps in order to leading better lives, in order to creating a better world, and in order to achieving peace within oneself. All of these things are integral elements of the kingdom of heaven, as our Lord described them. The kingdom of heaven is eternal. It pertains to things that are sustainable, divine, and teleological, meaning purpose-driven. There are goals in mind for you being able to think and reflect as a human being. And thus there are goals in mind for you to use your thinking. We all should not be ignorant or negligent of our capacity to think and the constraints thereof then. For there is divine purpose behind them and there are real consequences for how we use them. It is within our grasp as well to measure, interact with, and embody our constraints as best we can.